When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Ian Irving and today's show is all about the new Brazilians, a new blend of energy, industry and functionality and attack that's so different to the magical, mythical megastars of our childhoods. You can sing like the canary, you can be a virtuoso. But believe me, you can make only beautiful music if you know how to play in an orchestra. We'll focus in in particular on Gabriel Jesus, Richarlison and Rafinha, who have all made big money moves this summer, but don't worry, we'll also be reminiscing a little bit as well. And we'll ask the question about how the makeup of a modern day Brazilian superstar has changed over the last 25 years, and is there still room for a little Joga Benito at the highest level? To answer that question, we're joined by Jack Lang, staff writer for The Athletic, an expert, of course, on South American football. Our Spurs and England correspondent, Jack Pitt-Brook, is with us as well, or JPB throughout the uh, duration of this podcast considering we've got two jacks and Michael Cox our tactics writer is here as well gentlemen we'll talk about the trio of transfers in just a moment but let's take a look back first and JPB just a couple of weeks ago on this podcast we revisited the 2002 World Cup people can go back and listen to that if they fancy a trip down memory lane it was great fun to do and we had a brilliant reaction to it as well but that team of Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Rivaldo and others of course the thing that jumped out to me straight away when reflecting on it was why we never saw any of those three in the Premier League what do you think? That's a really good question I think it's probably because at that point the Premier League didn't have the financial dominance over the other leagues that it has now at that point you know the the world transfer record would have been Zidane to Real Madrid uh, it wasn't common for Premier League teams to go and buy the best established players from other countries. You know, the, the best players in the world, you know, the, it would have been, what, a year or two after this World Cup that Ronaldinho went from PSG to Barcelona. Obviously, Man United wanted him, but United couldn't really afford him. So 2002 Brazil team was an era where the, Prem, you know, the Premier League could afford some of them. They could have, you know, the Premier League could afford Cleberson and Gilberto Silva, but the Premier League just couldn't afford the big attacking players. So that's really what's changed is that now the Premier League can really afford any player it wants. That's what we've seen in the last five years, but it hasn't always been that way. Yeah, interesting point that you pick up on there uh, because it was the more functional players in that squad that English teams seemed to be able to attract, whether that's because the attacking talents had a lot more interest in them or just maybe they suited English football better at that point. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether it's necessarily a, a thing to do with Brazilians or to do with attacking players. I just, I don't think the Premier League has ever really attracted the best players in the world. I mean, Rivaldo, Ronaldinho and Ronaldo have been my top 10 of players I've seen over the last 20, 25 years. But I mean, who's the yeah. biggest player that has come, you know, established players that have come to the Premier League in their peak? 
I mean, maybe Veron you can make an exception for, was a British transfer record at the time. Obviously, it was round about that time, a year before that World Cup, and obviously it was Argentine. But in general, I think Premier League clubs have tended to sign like the second-tier players. Um, you know, Ronaldo, I would say, is a bit of a caveat because he's come after his peak, really. Um, obviously, Manchester City are interested in Messi. Even Haaland, I would say, is more of an up-and-coming player rather than someone who's established as one of the top 10 players in the world. So, yeah, it, it certainly manifested itself in terms of that Brazil team. Would have been nice to have one of those three over. Um, but yeah, it's probably a wider pattern as well. What's the Brazilian attitude towards it, Jack? Do they, is there a reticence from their side to, to come to England, come to the Premier League? Certainly back then, was it a different a different conversation than maybe it is now? Uh, well, I think just to, just to add to what the other guys have said, I'd say two things. Firstly, I mean not to take too much from Michael's playbook, but just tactically, I know, think of like Hivaldo and Ronaldinho. So I am going to do the uh, desperately pretentious Brazilian pronunciations Love here. It. I apologise in advance for that. Um, these are players who didn't really fit in with the tactical paradigm with of English football at that time. I know it's easy to kind of overlook that now. We're used to tactical flexibility and continental players being given the space and responsibility to be creative players. But back then, it wasn't so common. So players like Ronaldinho, players like Hivaldo, essentially number 10s who require a bit of freedom, who require a little bit of leeway, really. You know, when you've got Ronaldinho your team, you're going to defend with 10 players because he's not really going to chip in. And even just the shape of teams, you know, English football was moving away from 4-4-2, but it was still more common than it is now. And it's hard to fit in a creative player like that into that system, which is why beyond that, there's also the cultural question. So at that time, there weren't many South Americans or certainly fewer South Americans in the Premier League. And I think there was a snowball effect. It's easier to sign a Brazilian when you've got a Brazilian, um, even just regionally. So it's easier for I don't know, Man City to sign a Brazilian if Man United have got a Brazilian because they'll be living in the same city. And I know it's a cliche to say, oh, you know, will a Brazilian adapt to life in the Premier League in England? But that is a question for a reason because I can tell you from personal experience, knowing uh, a lot of Brazilians, my wife is Brazilian, England is a massive cultural difference even compared to, to other European countries. So England is significantly harder for them to adapt to than Portugal and Spain, even Italy. We think about footballers in, in terms of performance and in terms of money and in terms of tactics, but there is a personal side to it. And it, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me massively that in an era when maybe Premier League clubs didn't have systems to welcome players, to make them feel at home, that maybe England was a bit daunting for, for them at that time. I guess at this point, JPB, we should sort of reminisce a little bit about these great Brazilian sides. We only talked about the 2002 World Cup, but throughout that period, that run of three World Cup finals, 94, 98 and 2002, there's some fantastic footballers in those squads. Who was your favourite? I'm going to have to be, I'm going to, have to do the obvious and boring answer and say the man who people are now calling Ronaldo Nazario, uh, not Fat Ronaldo, which I think was actually quite a mean <laughs> a mean thing that people used to say. I saw him just, in Ibiza just, a year ago. I can confirm that the nickname was fairly accurate still. I saw him in Ibiza. I was in DC10 once when he was there a few years That's ago. That's um, obviously his vill, isn't it? I, I, honestly, just I th- one thing that I would like to convey to our younger listeners out there who I think, you know, because I'm sure we do have a lot of people, I mean, me, Coxie and Jack Lang are probably more or less the same age. So there must be a lot of people out there who maybe aren't familiar with this. But when, like, when we were growing up, Brazil was the byword for 
good, exciting, attacking football in a way which hasn't really been the case for the last 10, 15 years. Like, I know that, you know, there was a period where maybe it was Barcelona or Real Madrid or maybe even now PSG, weirdly enough. But when we were growing up, Brazil was just... Brazil was Brazil stood for good, exciting, attacking football. And long before... Yeah. You know, even before people would watch a lot of, you know, whether it's Juve or Ajax or the teams that were best in the Champions League in the late 90s, what you really got excited about was Brazil. Like anyone can remember, you know, remember watching Brazil on TV in the 94 World Cup, the 98 World Cup, the 2002 World Cup. It was, it, they were just so exciting. They were exotic. They didn't play in England, which made them more exciting, I think. And, you know, I mean, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned Ronaldo, but you could just as easily have chosen Rivaldo or someone else. But, like, the way they played was thrilling. Just to come in on that, I remember really clearly having an issue of 442 magazine that had a Brazil special. I think it was probably just either side of the 98 World Cup, probably just before the 98 World Cup. And obviously, you know, the names that we know were front and centre. There were also just references to loads of players I hadn't heard of and who just sounded so uh, exotic. You know, Van Petter, um, Junior Serza, all these kind of players who objectively weren't that big deal, you know, in terms of broad history of football. But at that time, pre-Wikipedia, and again, you know, don't want to patronise the kids here, but we didn't have access to information about these players. So like literally a little line in a feature in 442 about some guy who'd been scoring for Flamengo and, you know, was knocking on the door of the World Cup squad was really exciting. It can be easy to look at those stereotypes now and kind of groan slightly. But when I was growing up, certainly, and the 98 World Cup was the first big one that I really got into. Yeah, the allure of Brazil was, was still really strong. How long do you think, Jack, how long do you think that lasted for? Maybe, I mean, they, were, they, were, they still felt like a draw in 2006 in a way which I didn't really think they felt in 2010. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, 2006 was, I suppose the, the word I'd use for that time, it was just, just dysfunctional, like it just didn't really work. But there was still, there was still a sense that they were kind of trying to cram all these attacking talents in there. So it was, I suppose, you kind of see that as, as a turning point in terms of that generation probably had past its peak and there was a pretty foolhardy attempt to squeeze all these attackers into one team and the defence was past its best by that point. But yeah, certainly 2002, it wasn't the most thrilling Brazil team by a long shot and probably, I think, less exciting on balance than maybe 98. But but they still had just enough allure to kind of hark back to the really good old days. And for those who weren't around to watch 70 or 82 they were still enough to get you into the idea of Brazil as this, uh, you know, point of difference to what we were used to in European football. Who was your favourite, Michael? Uh, Ronaldinho was my favourite. I think he was just head. And he's he's not the best footballer I've seen, but he there's there was the biggest margin between him and everyone else, if that makes sense. If you look at the 2004 Ballon yeah. d'Or, I think it was Lampard and Gerrard. 2005 Ballon d'Or it was Lampard and Gerrard in second and third place don't get me wrong very good players but Ronaldinho was on a completely different level to everyone else in a way that I don't think Messi and Ronaldo ever have been because they've been existing at the same time um, I mean he just did extraordinary things with the ball that kind of made you laugh out loud when you're watching him now Ronaldinho oh it's a terrific goal wonderful wonderful goal absolutely breathtaking Ronaldinho you just didn't see it but he combined that with 
being the best player in the world. He was incredibly efficient. He was a good goal scorer. He was very selfless, actually, for such a, a talented player. And he also existed maybe slightly before the real fascination with with stats, you know, with individual stats. Obviously, there's always goal scoring numbers, but I never heard anyone at the time kind of say that he needed to score more, he needed to do more or that, no, that's you know, true. He, he kind of that's just... definitely true. Yeah, he, he probably had the luxury of playing just before that period, a little bit like Zidane in a different way. But yeah, he, he'd be my favourite. I mean, he's probably along with Messi, was probably the only player that I would really tune in just to watch what he could do. He was unbelievable. And, and, and good for a longer period than I think people remember as well. He's got this reputation as being, you know, he, he faded early, but I mean, Jack will be able to speak more than me, but he went back to Brazil and won the Copa Libertadores when he was... 33 or 34 or something. I mean, more longevity than, than people think. I know Ronaldinho's got, you know, a Ballon d'Or, but for Michael to praise it, like Michael's got a very strong radar for particularly number 10s from yesteryear who are kind of overrated and deified on the basis of their highlight reel, but maybe weren't consistently shaping games. I think Michael's right to say that people think of him to some extent now as that kind of showboaty player who decorated games but he was also someone who defined games really frequently and not a player who would kind of you know chip in with the odd piece of skill when the match was already won he really did make a massive difference particularly for for Barcelona during those years do you know what quality I think people kind of related to that what quality people overlook about him he was so strong he was really really strong he used to get a good kick in but his upper body strength was absolutely unbelievable and I think that's what some maybe it's a bit of a um, you know caricature, but I think the, the classic Brazilian thing is oh they're they're talented, but they can get shoved off the ball. You couldn't shove him off the ball. He was so good at protecting it, and I think that's why he was so good at you know even when he wasn't getting that much space, he was still able to dominate games. To go deeper back into Brazil's history at the World Cup as well, not too far deeper to be fair, just a couple of tournaments before JPB, but there was something really alluring about the Romario Bebeto team of 1994 as well. And again, stars of that side never made their way over to England either. And and, and like we were saying before, it just adds to the lore of these these players because we never really got to see them up close and personal did we We never got to judge every mistake we, we saw the best bits really and they shone at world cups as well yeah completely and i think that's really one of the big differences between being you know uh let's say an eight-year-old ten-year-old football fan watching the 94 world cup and watching this world cup like who are the best players going to be at this world cup kevin de bruyne plays in england sadio mané used to play in england uh, Robert Lewandowski doesn't play, hasn't played in England, but is kind of rare in that in that fact. And also, you know, anyone who likes footballs watched Lewandowski play on TV a million times. So it's Messi, who we're very familiar with, and Ronaldo, who's now back in England. But it's just it was just very very different. I think being being a football fan back in the nineties and watching these guys who you'd never heard of, you you know, you might you might have known the names of them, but you wouldn't really have watched them play football. And then all of a sudden, you're watching them play for Brazil on terrestrial TV, and they're sensationally good. It was just, it it was exciting in a way, I mean, this probably sounds ridiculous to a 20-year-old listening to this podcast, but it was just really, really exciting. Yeah, and my dad told me stories about Romario playing for Barcelona against Manchester United, and they absolutely battered him um, just after the 94 World Cup with Aristo Stoichkov up front. I saw Stoichkov at City um, about two years ago, something like that. He was over to do an interview with Pep Guardiola for Bulgarian television and 
I've never actually watched the game back. I've only ever heard what my dad said about it, but my dad's account was so like special that I felt starstruck going to speak to Aristo Stoichkov, despite the fact that I didn't even see the game, to be fair. It was just a reference point from my dad. Um, Romario's got quite an interesting story as well, Jack, because he's not a footballer anymore. He's something very different, isn't he? Yeah, he's a politician. Um, kind of a... Hard to define him, really, in terms of, you know, left to right. He's kind of a semi-populist figure. He's kind of taken up causes on in different spheres, different sides of the spectrum. Jack's dropped a star spot in Ibiza. I saw Romario having breakfast once in a cafe in Brazil. He's got, he still looks unbelievably in shape. I mean, he must be... He looks be, more in shape now than he did when he yeah, was playing, Yeah, he's got like he? cropped grey hair. He's on the beach. He plays uh, Fujivali, like foot, foot volleyball is his big thing. And he's frequently spotted out, you know, early in the morning they play before it gets too hot. I was too young, really, to watch him live, apart from, you know, the very end of his career playing for Brazil, obviously taking Manchester United apart at the Club World Cup uh, for Vasco da Gama. With Edmundo as well. With Edmundo. And, yeah, he is someone I would love to have seen a bit more of live because I think his style, he's exactly the kind of striker I like, someone who is just pure efficiency, doesn't care about scoring the beautiful goal necessarily, although does score some beautiful goals, but just exists to put the ball in the net. There's a very famous, well, famous for Brazil Twitter account called uh, Ensino Romario, which means teach them Romario, in which they pick out uh, notable misses from global football, like a Champions League game or a Premier League game. It might be Marcus Rashford missing a chance in the Champions League. And whoever runs this account has an archive of Romario goals and is able to find, I don't know how it works, is able to find a really similar chance of Romario just sticking the ball in the net, even if it's like a toe poke or a messy finish. I implore you to go look at this account because it's unbelievable how similar some of these goals are and just the variety of goals Romario scored, just always found a way to get it in the net. Uh, in this age of, you know, super-powered strikers who do a bit of everything, that kind of, the guy who lives only to get the ball over the line is, uh, yeah, it's a disappearing art, I would say. Yeah, sounds like an interesting way to spend this afternoon, actually, Googling Romario goals and looking up that account as well. Before we go any further then and start talking about the Brazilian stars in the Premier League now, I think it's about time we did a quiz. I don't know what anyone else thinks. I'm sure everyone was screaming at home that they wanted to do a quiz at this point. Right, across the 1994, 1998 and 2002 World Cups, there were eight players who have appeared in the Premier League in those squads. Can you name them? Gilberto Silva. Yes. Cleberson. Yes. Janinho. Yes. There are a couple that I'll be very impressed if you get, but I'll be surprised if you did. No. That was, that was a great shout. That's a good shout. Uh, what is, is Rocco Jr. had a spell at Leeds. Ooh, he did, on loan at Leeds, yeah, that's right. Branco had a few games for Middlesbrough left back. That's right, you're up to five. I can't remember, did Emerson play for Brazil in the World Cup? No, he didn't, but I, uh, I thought he would have been one as well. The other one I thought, I'm not sure on this, is Doriva. That is Doriva, oh... Wow, yes, well played, Toxie. The only player in Brazil's squad at the 1998 World Cup who was played in the Premier League. Wow, that is, that is surprising. I think I'm out. That was one that I didn't think you'd get. Um, there's two left. 
another former Middlesbrough player of the two. Weirdly, five of the eight played for Middlesbrough. Bizarre. Yeah. Talking about attracting people culturally. I couldn't think of another. I assumed that Rochenbach was going to be. I can't think who else it would be. So you're looking for a fullback who played in the capital. Silvino? Nope. Also played for Barcelona in a Champions League final. Belletti? Belletti, yeah. The last one. I'd forgotten Brazil. Yeah, the last one was contracted to Middlesbrough in 2004, but never actually kicked a ball for them in the first team. Appeared on the bench once. Oh. So saying he played in the Premier League is probably a little bit of a stretch, but he was contracted to Borough at the time. Jack Lang, I'm looking at you. It's quite an interesting story. Steve McLaren signed him for Middlesbrough. Put you out of your misery? I've got nothing here, yeah. No idea. I'll put you out of your misery. Riccardinho. Uh, central midfielder vaguely I didn't yeah. know he went to Middlesbrough though wow. I don't remember that at all. no no nor did I and I, I started to look it up he signed on a short term free in 2004 to cover injuries and suspensions according to Steve McLaren and those injuries were never as bad as McLaren thought they were <laughs> there's got to be more to this story someone must know what exactly happened with this lad sounds like a piece for uh, Jack to do yeah, he played a reserve team game um, against Wolves, I think, and uh, appeared on the bench once, and that was it. And he he wasn't old or anything like that. He was 27. He went on after that to have a brilliant career in, in Brazil and uh, and had done great things before it as well. So an utterly bizarre case. There's not many World Cup winners who go to Middlesbrough and don't play, Jack, is there? There's been a few World Cup winners who've gone to Middlesbrough, but most of them have had an impact of some sort. Janino, uh, of course, who we've not really talked about, who was probably the first big Brazilian star in the Premier League. Legends like Afonso Alves as well, we shouldn't overlook. <laughs> yeah, they, true. They've, they've had their share up there, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Being caught in possession, chance here for Everton! Taken by Richarlison! What a massive goal! 
let's talk about these three players then that this podcast is hung on. Richarlison, Gabriel Jesus and Rafinha. Three of the, the stars of the modern Brazil team and interesting stories, each of them, about the moves that they've made. JPB, we'll start with Richarlison. We talked about him a few weeks ago on the podcast. There was quite a few people who raised the eyebrow at the suggestion that he was signing for £60 million for Tottenham and wouldn't necessarily be an automatic choice for Antonio Conte. Is it his versatility that you think stands out? I think so, yeah. So Tottenham, you know, Tottenham haven't had a good backup to Harry Kane, certainly since Fernando Llorente went, and he was, you know, he was very much at the end of his career when he was at Spurs. So they've ne- and they've been quite lucky, really, Spurs, that Kane and Son have been so good and so fit for the last few years. Like the guys never get injured, but eventually, they, you know, they're going to need backup. So I think Richarlison will come. In, I think he'll play a lot of games next season, even if he's not an automatic first choice, just because he can play in Kane's role, Son's role, or Kulusevski's role, um, and that's why it's such an exciting signing for Spurs. They've never really Spurs have never had depth in that position at all, um, and so I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Richarlison does. Yeah, Charlie Eccleshire has written a piece on Richarlison's move on the Athletic now. Versatility, endless running and a bomb with the fans, he says, is what he will bring to the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, this time next year, what position do you think is going to be the most used in when we look back at the, the Premier League season? Because it is difficult to pin him down, really, isn't it? I think the position he'll play the most is probably Kuliseski's position on the right okay. of the front three, just because I think Son and Kane will play not all the games, but most of the games. Uh, Richarlison and Kulisevsky I mean Richarlison's quicker than Kulisevsky I think he's maybe a little bit more goal oriented Kulisevsky's maybe a little bit more of a 10 although he's not really a classic 10 um, but yeah I'm really looking forward to to seeing how he does I think he I, I love watching Richarlison play I've I, pe- I said I described him as elite on Twitter when Spurs signed him and I got shouted at maybe he's not an elite but I think he's a really good player <laughs> like he he's got he plays with real personality and character and also the, the thing you've got to remember is he's been carrying Everton single-handedly like it's not you can't just look at his stats for Everton and assume that he'll be the same player at Tottenham because he won't he's playing for a far better team better manager better teammates less individualised pressure on him because he's not the guy who's got to get the ball in the halfway line run 50 metres and then put it in the bottom corner so he's going to be playing a completely different game but I think he's exactly I think he's what Tottenham need he's got He's got basically everything to his game that you would want. It's hard to think of something that he he's not naturally good at. Jack, you've written as well about Richarlison's backstory. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, it's a story that you wrote a few years ago that's been updated and is on The Athletic now as well, the Richarlison you don't know. And it starts with a lovely anecdote about the journey that he had uh, from a position of selling ice creams and then receiving his first bag of Nike goodies shall we say um i'll let you tell the story about what he did with that bag yeah this was a story i completely stumbled into i mean i was i was given the task of writing about him and i kind of wanted to express a bit of his personality because he's someone who people watch and see that kind of furrowed brow and bit of a snarl and i think a lot of people um interpret that as him being a bit of an idiot frankly and you, you see a lot of that reaction but I've seen a different side of him, which is kind of, he's a bit goofy and he's a bit weird. And I wanted to write about that. But this this anecdote came from just talking to a few people. It wasn't something I'd known about, but a couple of his old teammates said, yeah, he got all this, you know, bags of new Nike gear and he just packed all his old stuff into suitcases, went into the centre of... Where he was playing at the time, just handed it all out to the homeless people. And he's also just, um, he's shown 
in England, but mainly in Brazil. I think there's been a language barrier thing with him that's stopped him showing his personality, maybe. He's very interested in social causes. He, um, he was tweeting recently about the tragic deaths of um, Dom Phillips and Bruno Pereira up in the Amazon. He seems to be engaged and he's, I think, away from the pitch. I think he's hopefully be able to show this when he learns a bit more English, which has been quite slow. But he's, he's a funny personality. He's um, kind of silly. He's quite good on his media duties. I think he's quite well advised on that front as well, I would say. And yeah, I mean, when I wrote this piece, he DM'd me, said like, well, where can I read this? And I was like, no, you've got to, got to subscribe, mate. But he read it, seemed to enjoy it. And I mean, there's, there's massive competition as we'll, we will go on to discuss, I'm sure, for the places up front and in those attacking positions for Brazil. But he's someone who has always seemed to um, have a special place in the heart of Brazil coach Chichi. One of Chichi's first kind of comments on him when he first came into the squad, right? he smells of goals, which is kind of what Jack was saying, like, you know, a goal-oriented player, someone who um, he's not there to faff about and necessarily, you know, link up the play with beautiful touches all the time. He's someone who, you know, he's kind of got a one-track mind. And that, I think, in a Brazil team, which has always been full of creative players and maybe in recent years a bit you know slightly geared towards the more decorative stuff than the the final product I think that's made him a really useful player yeah let's talk about another one of the options in the Brazil team now who's made a move well from one Premier League team to another actually in Gabriel Jesus uh, at de Roche and John Muller have written on the Athletic about how he can unlock Arsenal's attack after Lacazette's loneliness up front last season how do you see this working Michael yeah, I think he's a good signing. Obviously, someone Arteta knows from Manchester City. The thing I like about him is, you know, if a, if a team signs a striker these days, especially like an expensive striker who expect to start every game, there are some situations, particularly in big games, where managers don't actually want to use a striker. And the good thing about Jesus is he's played on the right. I mean, he played more on the right for City than he did up front last season, despite the fact City didn't really have a, another option up front. So... I think that versatility is quite crucial for Arsenal. And I can see some games where, you know, maybe he does play from the right and Arsenal play without a conventional striker, which, um, you know, at times I think Arsenal have looked better when they've when they've used just link players rather than a, a proper number nine. But uh, yeah, for the majority of the games, he'll be down the middle. He's someone with good movement. I quite like his link play. He's hardworking in terms of pressing. I think the question mark is whether he really scores enough goals. Um, you look through his expected goals numbers for the Premier League and they tend to be, he tends to score slightly fewer the goals than you would expect for the chances that he gets. But I mean, I don't know, maybe Jack can shed some light on this about his personality. To me, sometimes he's, he almost like seems to lack a bit of confidence. And I, I wonder whether players like that, they're better off being somewhere like Arsenal where they'll start 90% of games rather than at City mm. where they start 50%. And maybe if, if he just gets a run in the side, um, yeah, maybe he'll be a better player than we saw at City. Yeah, confidence-wise, I think the World Cup in 2018 was a bit of a blow for him. He, he kind of arrived there as, as a number nine. England played Brazil in a friendly just before that time and, and Dani Alves called him the new Ronaldo. That's a lofty comparison, but that was the, the, the type of player that they were expecting him to be in Brazil. Someone who um, would be in the box, would finish off chances. That was more of a Manchester City thing than a um, 
youth development thing because when he broke through for Palmeiras he was playing more out on the left actually kind of cutting inside but someone who would stretch the play do some skills cross as well as score so it was really kind of Guardiola's initiative saw something in him that he could make him into a number nine and of course initially it looked like he was going to usurp Sergio Aguero quite quickly in that regard made such a flying start Um, but then he arrives at the, the 2018 World Cup doesn't score that was part of the reason why Brazil didn't go as far as they might have expected. And then he kind of carried that into the next tournament, which was the Copa America a year later. Um, first four games, he didn't score in that either. And then, you know, Brazil were winning, I think, 5-0 against Peru. And he, they won a last-minute penalty and he grabbed the ball. And it was like, OK, well, this is, this is it. This is finally your, your big tournament goal. And he missed the penalty. Um, and Thiago, he does play for City, doesn't he? In fairness, they're, they're quite good at that. And, and Thiago Silva afterwards said, like, you know, Brazil had, what well, it was a knockout game. Brazil had won 5 0, and Thiago Silva said he was devastated. You know, and he, he was really, really gutted. Um, he did eventually score against Argent- Argentina, kind of got the monkey off his back, scored again in the final, and semi put that to bed. But it's been notable that much as for. City in recent seasons he's been playing more on the right for Brazil as well I think he's actually very good in that position I think he brings um, you know plenty of skill I think positionally he's really smart he's uh, maybe doesn't take his man on as much as he could but I, I think he's a useful player out on the right for sure and as Michael said he can do that for Arsenal again the question is the goal record so for Brazil like Basically, he went from having scored, you know, 10 in his first 17 Brazil games, and that's now 19 in 56. So he's really slowed down that front. I really like Gabriel Jesus, but I just don't... I think he'll be a fantastic signing for Arsenal because of everything he brings to the all-round game. Like, he's, you know, compared to Lacazette, there's a huge difference. Like, his his pressing, his link-up play... Uh, you, you can tell why Guardiola loved having Gabriel Jesus on the team for big games. He would always have him there, not playing as a nine, but playing on the right of that 4-3-3 because of what he brings to the team overall. Uh, so in that sense, I think he's really going to elevate Arsenal's play. The problem is, the other guys have, have, have identified, he's just not really a goal scorer. Like his best Premier League season, he's got 14 Premier League goals. That's not That's not a great return. And you can just, I think if he'd been a good goal scorer he would have supplanted Sergio Aguero. Like, he he came straight into the team ahead of Aguero when City signed him in Palmeiras. Um, but because Aguero was so much better in the box, eventually Aguero won his place back, and Aguero was the first choice number nine until the in- injuries basically curtailed his City career instead of Jesus. So I, I don't know whether he will be able to make that leap into being an elite goal scorer, or if he'll just be a very good all-round all player. But, he, I mean, if Arsenal fans think they're going to get a 30 Premier League goals out of him next season, I fear they're going to be a little bit disappointed, although I do, I am a huge admirer of his all-round game. Will City miss him? Not not goals-wise, because he didn't really score enough goals. I think, I wonder whether they might miss him in games where they're playing against a good team and Guardiola wants someone who plays on the right of that three, who is really, really good at pressing, really good off the ball, selfless. He played because, a lot towards the end of last season, didn't yeah. he, in the important matches? Like, Mahrez is fantastically gifted, like, unbelievably gifted player. But Mahrez doesn't work for the team half as much as Gabriel Jesus does. So I think City will, will miss his work rate a bit. But when it, com- when, when it comes to being a number nine, he, uh, Jesus always reminds me of... Do you remember that bit at the end of season two of Succession where Logan Roy says to Kendall, you're not a killer, you have to be a killer. And that's obviously what you know precipitates 
Kendall's move against Logan, but that's basically how I feel watching Gabriel Jesus play. Like the number of games when he play when he would play as a number nine, and City just needs someone to make that little dart to the near post and put a cutback in or whatever. The stuff that Aguero has scored hundreds and hundreds of goals for City doing. That's just not his game. Like he doesn't pick up space in the box that easily. His movement's not as good. His finishing's not as good. He's just not. He doesn't have that kind of like deadly clinicism in the penalty area that Sergio Aguero has. And uh, you know he's not going to pick that up now because you don't. You know you either have that or you don't. Okay. What about Rafinha then? Obviously he's made the move over to Barcelona. Not that he's been registered yet, but I'm sure they'll get there eventually. We asked our esteemed writer Paul Ballas, who's very close to the Catalan club, for his thoughts. <laughs> I think that in terms of like scouting and uh, decision making from the board uh, when deciding if Rafinha was a player who met Barca's standards, his nationality and all the Brazilian background that uh, Barcelona has was not specifically taken into account. But in terms of narrative, definitely yes. You could see that Barcelona president Joan Laporta in Rafinha's unveiling quickly reminded himself and the media that that was there with concepts like Joga Bonito, which is beautiful football in Portuguese. Um, and yeah, Barcelona through the social media and like their official channels, they quickly remembered figures such as Ronaldinho. And actually, I think this is kind of an interesting point because Ronaldinho joined Barcelona in a similar situation. It was a really depressed club, traumatized by Real Madrid, recent success and the inability from the club itself to find like a glimmer of hope inside the institution. Ronaldinho made an impact, of course, on the pitch, but he is also really remembered in the streets of, of Barcelona by his enthusiasm that brought off the pitch. The simple fact of a player enjoying himself, having fun while being great at, at football, I think that made Barca fans feel that happy days could be back at some point. And they were. I'm not saying that Rafinha has to be branded as the new Ronaldinho and he won't be expected to have the same effect than him, probably because Ronaldinho was the big name on that Barca squad. And just on this transfer window, I think that Robert Lewandowski will be demanded more things in the short term than, than Rafinha for sure. But he comes in as an important player. And I think that the dressing room knows that. Sergio Busquets. In fact, highlighted him last night in a press conference as a top-class footballer. And I think that this narrative of a Brazilian talent who can light up a game with like a different kind of talent, of course, it has a special meaning at the Camp Nou, 100%, and is something that the Barcelona fans will look for in, in the signing of Rafinha. Michael, it's interesting that he made the comparison with Ronaldinho because as soon as Rafinha said that he was destined in his mind to go to uh, the Camp Nou, it gave me a lot of the same feelings about the, the Barcelona sides that we grew up watching in the 90s in particular, that they needed the best of Brazil in the Barcelona side for it to feel right. It feels like a Barcelona player straight away almost in that sense. Yeah, I mean, a Brazilian name beginning with R works. They had Romario and Ronaldo and Rivaldo and Ronaldinho. So, yeah, it certainly fits with that. Um, and, yeah, he's an exciting player. I mean, they've got quite a lot of attackers now, haven't they, Barcelona? I'm, I'm they've got quite a lot of everything, haven't they? Yeah, I'm old enough to remember late 2021 when we were told that Barcelona were in crisis and would never sign a, a good player again. <laughs> and since then, they brought in yeah. Aubameyang and Lewandowski and Rafinha. 
um, Torres. So yeah, they're, they're quite overloaded on good attacking players. Um, so I'm excited to see how he'll do. Um, I think Xavi has the makings of a very promising coach. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a really good player to watch. I remember the first time I saw him, Rafinha playing for Leeds and to be honest, it suddenly slightly passed me by. And just the first time he saw him, he was just, yeah, he's a brilliant, brilliant footballer. Um, but it's quite a big jump in expectations, really. I mean, going from Leeds, yeah. all due respect, big club, but battling relegation for last season. To go to Barcelona is quite a big step up in expectations, I think. Yeah, it feels like there's an awkwardness in the comparison, Mike, as well, doesn't there, between Rafinha at this sort of stage and the names that we mentioned before, because he's got quite a long way to go to get anything like that sort of level, hasn't he? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, he's um, yeah, he's, he's an up and coming player who I think there's a there's a hope that he can adjust and play at the top level, but uh, he hasn't got a track record of doing that for a, a big club. So uh, yeah, it's uh, a shift in expectation. Jack, why do you think Barcelona wanted him? First and foremost, he is. It seems like a silly thing to say, but he's just really fit. Like he's just wiry and the, the kind of player you look at you th- you know just on a purely visual level you think yeah he can cope with the press he can cope with playing 90 minutes you know someone who came from Liga um, immediately adapted to Marcelo Bielsa you know this, this is not someone who is necessarily easy to to impress early on but Hafinha um, was instantly kind of a an obvious fit with Bielsa's system and you know even from uh, even before we get into his attacking output I think the way the work he puts in the diligence and it seems like a very serious kind of player like he takes his duties seriously he's not you know a kind of fly-by-night creator and yet still the end product is very very good he's got a fabulous left foot He's tricky, but I think he deploys it at the right time. Happy to shoot on sight. I I think there's a lot to be said for players who take responsibility. Um, you know, he's. I think that's something that played into his hands playing for Leeds is the fact that he was the main man and it, he was kind of, I suppose, to some degree liberated to take seven, eight, nine shots a game because you know, leads were really dependent on him. And it often it worked out very well. Again, at Barcelona that's gonna be different. The dynamic is gonna is gonna shift there. He's gonna be more of a a cog in a system. Xavi's still kind of finding his way as a manager, but I there's not gonna be as much space for him to be the ball arriving at his feet every time Barcelona needs some inspiration. I think it's gonna be he might have to be a bit more patient in matches, but I think he's shown enough to suggest that tactically he can he can slot into more of a uh, more of a system maybe than than Leeds was during the last few months. So yeah, I think I, I think he has what it takes. It does strike me as quite a lot of money um, given the step up. You know, not someone who's used to Champions League football, as Michael said, um, and. We don't know how much he's going to play necessarily because of that ridiculous number of attackers they've got. I mean, Michael mentioned a few. There's there's also Dembele on top of that. And, you know, Gavi can play an attacking position. So there really is a lot of competition there. I think he'll probably assume he's going to be first choice on the right. Um, but if Dembele plays well and sticks around, that could be fairly tough. JPB, which of these moves do you see being the most successful? 
I mean, it depends whether you mean successful for the player or successful for the club. And also, do you mean which club will do the best out of Tottenham, Barcelona? If you mean who will have the best season out of Tottenham, Barcelona and Arsenal, well, I'm going to say, I think Tottenham will finish ahead of Arsenal next year in the league, for example. How you would compare them with Barcelona... I don't know. I mean, I don't really know as much about Barcelona as, as perhaps I should. I definitely, I mean, I definitely think Xavi looks like a really good manager and they do have a lot of very good players. On the other hand, I don't really understand how it all adds up. Um, I'm going to say, but then Rafinha, I think Richarlison will probably be marginally more important to Tottenham than Rafinha will be to Barcelona. So I'm going to say Richarlison will have the best season in terms of how his team does. But Gabriel Jesus will be the most important to his team in terms of elevating their level. I think Gabriel Jesus will massively improve. Our, I think Gabriel Jesus will be more important to Arsenal than Richarlison will be to Tottenham. Yeah, it's an interesting way of answering that. And Jack, I suppose the other question is which of these three are going to end up being the most important for Brazil at the World Cup? Because these moves feel pivotal for their places in those squads and in the team indeed as well. I think it's natural to assume that all three of them will have taken the World Cup into account. I mean, it's not just a Brazilian thing, but it's it's very uh, in discussions about these moves in Brazil. The kind of the certainty or uncertainty over World Cup placings is is really high in the list of uh, of things people discuss, and players certainly will think about that. From that point of view, I think for Gabriel Jesus, it's excellent. I think he's going to play a lot more, uh, even if he doesn't score. You know. 15 goals before Christmas, even if he scores five or six, that's maybe more than he would have got for City. I think his confidence should rise. And uh, I think probably for him, this will improve his chances of going to Qatar. Hishalison is, you know, pretty much guaranteed a place in the squad. Uh, he's, you know, a pretty dependable part of the Brazil setup now. But I question whether it will be as beneficial for him because I don't think he will although he will get enough game time, he won't be a guaranteed starter every week because yeah. obviously the Son and Kane factor, but Kulusevski also had a fantastic second half of the season and won't be, you know, won't just be pushed down to the bench. So his Charleston may have fewer minutes under his belt this season for Hafinha. Well, I think it could go either way, really. I mean, he, he made an instant impact for Brazil and he's a good example of someone who left Brazil before being famous and then suddenly played for the national team and everyone's like, oh my God, who's this guy? Where's, where's he been? And, you know, playing for Leeds, playing for Leeds uh, although, Yorkshire. you know, it's not, playing for Leeds isn't as glamorous as playing for Barcelona. You know, you're not as visible playing for Leeds as you are playing for Barcelona, but he was playing every week, playing 90 minutes, playing in the Premier League. And yeah, I if, if he nails down his place at Barcelona, he should be fine, but you know, as we've said, there is competition there. So for him and Richarlison, I think if they're not playing as many minutes as they might have liked, I think that might complicate things. But on balance, I would expect all three of them to be in the squad for sure. Yeah, OK. Michael, the one thing about these three players, there's some similarities in their style. They're, they're aggressive, there's technical quality there, of course, but there's an element of industry to these three as well that maybe Brazil don't necessarily get with, with Neymar, certainly, and, and even Vinicius Jr. to a lesser extent. So they're useful footballers in that sense, aren't they, for their teams? Yeah, that's a good point about Neymar, and I think that is something that's changed about him. I remember when he was a young a young kid, when he first started playing for Brazil, one of the notable things was how energetic he was, how physical he was. He was actually quite prolific in terms of fouling. I was always amazed how often he fouled opponents for an attacking player. But that, I think, has gone out of his game. I just don't think he has the legs for that. I don't think PSG has helped him in that respect. It's it's obviously a, a culture of 
you know, you've got three players to attack and seven players to defend and a goalkeeper. Um, and I think that attitude has probably changed the way he plays. So yeah, it's a good point. They do need, you, you can probably only afford at most one of those players in your team. You could argue maybe not even that, although I do wonder whether the general tempo in Qatar will be a little bit slower than we're used to anyway. Um, but yeah, they'll need quick, energetic players around him. No, no question about that. This is one of the reasons why I'm kind of excited about watching Brazil at the World Cup is that I'm, I went to a few of their games in Russia four years ago and it was just the Neymar show. Like it, it, everything was about him. All they did was get the ball to him. All he did was try to score goals and do crazy stuff by himself. It was like watching like a 10-year-old at his birthday party who's just desperate to be the centre of attention. And even he wasn't even that happy. He didn't look that happy when his teammates scored because it, all he wanted to do was, was the amazing stuff himself. Um, whereas this time they've got, you know, I know Gabriel Jesus was there last time, but you know they've got if they've got Richarlison in there, Rafinha in there, Vinicius, who we haven't talked about yet, it's obviously been sensational for Real Madrid in recent years. But if they can inter- if they can get a bit more pace and a bit more balance in in and around Neymar, then I think they should be a better a better attacking unit next time. Jack, do you think the Premier League is going to miss out on Neymar as well, like we've missed out on Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, etc.? I would think so. Now, yes, I think it would take massive bravery to look at Neymar now I mean bravery yeah bravery is one way of putting it stupidity would probably be another to look at him now I I mean I've been a paid up member of the Neymar fan club Neymar the footballer uh since he broke through and I he's one of a handful of players I would happily pay to watch and re-watch because I think I think he is touched by genius or really do but you look at him now and he's not massively old but I think the injuries have taken their toll um, perhaps hasn't uh, you know compared to the bionic slash superhuman efforts of, of a Cristiano Ronaldo or a Lewandowski in terms of looking after their body it's probably not quite on the same level uh, he's I think he's lost a bit of pace he's bulked up a bit uh, he's still for my money a really great player on his days kind of the creative side of his game has really come to the fore but I just don't think that a Premier League team particularly you know one of the very elite teams can afford to have that kind of player who, who won't really participate in a press who still you know even now even when it, on a good day there is a bit of the 10 year old birthday party to him like Jack said like he he's someone who has a gravitational pull to the ball and you know when you're playing for PSG against Gangon, that's probably fine. But when you're, you know, if he moves, he's, imagine putting him in Liverpool team and, you know, it just wouldn't work. And it's the same for Manchester City. It's the same for Chelsea. You could maybe form an argument that, he, you know, a club as dysfunctional as Manchester United recently could, uh, would be an interesting fit for him. But yeah, I, I just, I don't think on a physical and tactical level, it's going to work at this stage and that's a shame because I think a lot of people would have enjoyed watching him here at his very best. Yeah, it feeds into a point, JPB, that we said at the top of the the podcast really where we were talking about the idea that a lot of the Brazilian stars who have been in the Premier League over the years have been the more the more functional Brazilians rather than the glitz and glamour of a, of a Neymar or a Ronaldinho. There was a Premier League 11 of Brazilians doing the rounds on social media last week. I'm sure people saw it. And even in that team, the front two were Firmino and Jesus, not exactly the most exciting goal-scoring centre-forwards that Brazil have ever produced. Yeah, yeah, completely. And if you, certainly the Brazilian players who have 
but I think been the best in English football in the last ten years have not really been, you know, they haven't been tens. They haven't be, they haven't really been creative players. I think I think the 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 best over the last ten years, the best Brazilian players in English football have been probably Fern, with Fernandinho, Alisson, Edison, Fabinho, Firmino, probably. And so you've got two keepers, one kind of false nine specialist. And two guys who play in the middle of the pitch, and I think that's because I'd be I'd be I'd be interested to hear Jack's theory on why exactly this is. But Brazil does produce a lot of players who are perfect for modern modern football as it's played in the Premier League, but they're just not tens. They're guys like I mean, Fabinho and Fernandinho are the best examples. But these are guys who are incredibly intelligent, incredibly athletic, versatile, can play in different systems. They're good in possession. They're brilliant out of possession. And if you're like a Klopp or a Guardiola, these are perfect players to build your system around so I think you know Brazil Brazil excites me Brazil produces far 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 more very good players than Argentina does nowadays and they can be very very useful to Premier League teams but they're just not you know Ronaldinho type players that's absolutely right I think it's it's hard to put a finger on why you know the more creative types haven't necessarily come here I think you know the tactical side of things that we discussed earlier I don't think that's really a valid reason anymore i think there there is space for creative players of the of the type that brazil has traditionally produced but i think the kind of trend of them clubs now try to sign these players at 17 18 rather than 23 and that means that when they come they're still in development as players that has a massive upside in terms of um, physique in terms of tactical understanding in terms of willingness to contribute defensively so you know Jesus is a fine example of that he he's you know double the player he was when he arrived and particularly in terms of like positioning and the way he presses maybe if he'd have stayed in Brazil for five more years and scored 100 goals he may be slightly more uh, confident up front he may have honed his finishing a touch more Um, so it'll be interesting to see you know whether clubs who sign players at that early stage can kind of can keep the magic as well as rounding them out as a player. I mean, Gabriel Machinelli at Arsenal is another really good example, kind of very sparky player we've seen in his first couple of seasons in England, really, you know, willing to take people on, exciting. Can he keep that side of his game as well as becoming a more complete player? Or, you know, I wonder if there's a sacrifice to be made there. Do you have to have a little bit of uh, do you have to have deficiencies in your game to maintain a bit of the magic that we loved from uh, Honoginho or those players? Does rounding a player out necessarily mean that they lose a bit of what might, might have made them special initially? Yeah, certainly Lucas Moura being converted, it seems at the moment, into a right wing back potentially uh, for Tottenham, although they've got quite a lot of options there in that position now. But the, the idea of moulding him into something that he's never been before as well, it does feel like Europe, um, even though they are just small examples of two particular players, but more generally Europe and European football has had a bigger influence on the Brazilian national team than maybe vice versa, like we were talking about in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how how at the World Cup this, you know, this generation of Brazilian players who have played under some fantastic coaches in European football and if that will add an extra an extra level to their game um, so I, this is slightly off topic but we can't I can't do this conversation without mentioning Alano 
who is one of my favorite players ever <laughs> and who actually you know for all we've, we've been talking about how oh you know the Brazilians who play in England are not stereotypical Brazilians Alano really is a stereotypical Brazilian you know this is a guy who is all all like technically unbelievable very imaginative audacious not physically strong not you know doesn't you know Jack was talking about how physically strong Ronaldinho is Alano wasn't like that Alano was someone who could be knocked off the ball and often was didn't particularly fancy a scrap there was something kind of quite 90s about him it was like a 90s Brazilian player and so of course you know I mean he had a few good years at City didn't last very long not certainly not someone who I think I could see a Premier League team going for now but also an example of how that kind of like you know stereotypical Brazilian player can be exciting in the Premier League even if he's not especially efficient. Michael are we ever going to get back to a point where a Brazilian national team is full of exciting stars do you think or is that ship completely sailed now and it's it's a different type of team now because football is so different now? I think the current Brazilian national team is more full of stars full of exciting attacking stars than it has been for a long time 2010 and 2014 Brazil were, were pretty poor to be honest pretty much reliant on a couple of individuals Rubinho and Kaka in 2010 and Neymar in 2014 and when he wasn't around they didn't really know what to do but I mean you look at the squad recently Richarlison, Neymar, Gabriel Jesus, Rafinha, Vinicius, Martinelli, Rodrigo at Real Madrid um, you know Coutinho has, has come a little bit back to the fore since he's come to the Premier League Bruno Guimaraes looks a really exciting player. Just to add into that, um, Lucas Paqueta, who's kind of combining really well with Neymar in a creative sense as well. You've got um, Anthony, really technical winger from Ajax. So yeah, lots of players. Are we at the maverick level though of of the three R's? Are, are we anywhere near that though? That that's sort of the the barometer in a sense, really, in terms of asking that question, Michael. No, I don't think we are. But I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a, another international team that can field a front three like that. Um, so no, we are way off that. But also those those players I just listed, with the exception of Neymar, who's thirty, Rafinha's twenty five, but they're very young. I mean, Martinelli, mm, Rodrigo, twenty one, Vinicius, twenty two, um, Gabriel Jesus and Richarlison are twenty five. But I mean, players tend to peak kind of late twenties. So four years time, I don't know. I, I think it's conceivable that Vinicius becomes like one of the best five ten players in the world. To uh, you know, for one. One thing, I'm, I'm really excited about this Brazil team, but genuine question, particularly for Jack and Coxie, who will know more, about, know, know more than me. Do they have any young defenders? Because it seems to me like they've got all these exciting young attacking players. But in the defence, it's going to be what? Thiago Silva, Marquinhos, and then some, I don't know, I think they must have younger fullbacks than Dani Alves and Marcelo and Felipe Luis, right? Uh, it's not great. I mean, at centre-back, there's also, so yeah, Thiago and Marquinhos will probably be starters. Eder Militon is the kind of backup. Oh, yeah. but, but beyond that, it's a bit of a wasteland. You're like, you know, you're then down to kind of Felipe from Atletico Madrid, who, in my opinion, isn't that great. Um, right back at the World Cup, it's, at the moment, it's looking like it's going to be Danilo, uh, former Manchester City player. I actually think is I actually think is pretty underrated. I think he's uh, he's he's not a flying Brazilian fullback in the classic mould, but I think he's uh, pretty solid on the whole and gives them a bit of balance. On the left, it's uh, you know it's kind of Henan Lodi or Alex Tellez. Uh, you know we're not talking elite level there either. So I think yeah the the defence apart from the goalkeeper where they've got an embarrassment of riches. I think the defence actually from being probably the strong suit four or five years ago is actually starting to look a little bit ropey. 
Interesting then. So it's actually gone full circle, this conversation in a sense. Are we getting back to very exciting displays from Brazil at the World Cup, Jack? Is that what we can expect in the in the winter? Um, I think it's hard. Like with Brazil at World Cups, there's, it's always a psychodrama. And this is part of the problem. There's Brazil, you know, doesn't matter how they've played in qualifying, how they've played in friendlies. Um, you know, they can have all the levity in the world. And that they show up at the World Cup and it's just like, it's heavy. It's just heavy because, you know, you've got Neymar, potentially this is his last World Cup. Um, whatever Neymar does at the World Cup, Jack mentioned 2018. And, you know, literally every performance is met by this unbelievable, you know, even by English standards, the level of kind of hand wringing is extraordinary. Um, so I think the amount of pressure and scrutiny always makes things tough I mean they've got a they've got a very good manager in Chichi who is um I think helped to mitigate against that he brings a level of calm but in terms of you know talent and combinations I agree with Michael I think it's they've got a fantastic number of options up front really different options as well um whether or not they can kind of click when the chips are down, I think is a different issue. Um, so I think, I think they will, you know, have no problem getting to the latter stages, but there's still compared to, you know, the Belgium game at the last World Cup was a really good example of the first really serious opponents they came up against, um, spooked them a little bit. And that's, you know, that's part of the problem with the international calendar as well. So without wanting to go off on too much of a tangent, South American teams hate the Nations League because it's, uh, much fewer opportunities to play against the top European teams. And when they do, it's at World Cup. And uh, frankly, they're not always as used to it as they'd like to be. So, you know, lots of young talent, big potential there. Uh, but, you know, mentality and ability to deal with pressure, I think is going to be the, the big issue there. Well, guys, that seems like a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, all three of you, for being with us. I hope people at home enjoyed that trip down memory lane, talking about the brilliant Brazilians of the past and also, of course, reflecting on what might be of this Brazil team in Qatar in the winter. Of course, you can hear more from Michael Cox on the Athletic Football Tactics Show every week. JPB is on the Spurs podcast as well. The View from the Lane and Jack Lang seems to pop up just about everywhere when someone needs some sort of reference to a Brazilian or Argentinian footballer but remember before we go a reminder that the Athletic is following England every step of the way in the Euros this summer with our daily women's football podcast so make sure you're subscribed to that and the Athletic is of course the place to be to keep right up to date with all the big transfer news as well and you can subscribe now for just one pound a month head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod but for the minute thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one The Athletic